Welcome to another episode of Exploring Art Podcast, a Florida International University student podcast for the creative curious. I'm your host, Brittany, and I'm very pleased to have Paul and Amanda with me today, welcoming to the Exploring Art Podcast. In today's episode, we will be diving into whether people who are not religious or non-believers can or cannot understand the music, paintings, and poetry created by religious believers. Hi, yes, this is an interesting topic, since we see many artists create works out of the passion and purpose. However, at times, we also see that they are just commissioned to complete the project with the real purpose in the background. As we get ready to dig into this case study, we want to think about the theologians and their purpose amongst religious pieces. Do they have a say in who understands and interprets religious art? The case study today is called Believers and Non-Believers. Do they get to feel the same? A leading theologian makes the following argument. Surely, a person who has never loved cannot understand or experience a love poem, and a person who knew no sorrow cannot really understand or experience an eology. Now, the vast majority of European art, including Greek art as well, is religious art. It was conceived and executed by religious people who aspired to impress their homage to God. Therefore, a non-believer cannot possibly understand or experience the music, the paintings, the poetry, or any art form created by believers. Is the theologian right about what non-believers can understand of religious art, about what non-believers can experience of religious art? So let's kick this case study off by breaking down key words that have a better understanding. What does a theologian do? So theologians are experts of religion. According to Times Higher Education, they claim that it examines the human experience of faith and how different people and cultures express it. Theologians examine that many different religions of the world and their impact on society. When we look at this, this prompts the question for everyone. Can anyone that studies the Bible be an expert? Or do you have to have a degree to be considered a theologian? When we take a closer look at chapter three, it shows the Holy Chapel uh, Saint Chapelle in Paris that was commissioned in 1239 by French King Louis IV. And he wanted all important relics at the time um, to be housed in there, including the true cross and the crown of thorns. However, the actual architect who was speculated to be Pierre of Montreal was not a religious figure. However, he was known to create something that almost a gateway to heaven, so to speak. Follow-up questions for listeners. How do we even know that theologians are correct? If religion is something that is only referenced in the recovery of documents and speculation. To be able to answer this question, we have to be able to look at and understand the following questions. Can anyone be a theologian? Do all religions have theologians? The reason I ask this question is that when you research theologian, it talks about someone who dedicates her or his life to the scholastic vocation of seeking after knowledge of God and things of God. But What if it was a dedication on their own? For instance, there were early Christian theologians like Clement of Alexandria, 
Clement was known for his combination of Greek philosophical traditions with Christian doctrine and St. Augustine, one of the most authoritative figures in Christian, Christian theology is St. Augustine, who successfully completed the merger of Greek philosophical practice and Judeo-Christian religious traditions. His treaties on authority and other theological issues have influenced Christian tradition for centuries, which could be considered philosophers as opposed to being people of the church or directly linked to the church. Then we see reformation theologians who are really connected to the church because they were hoping for change. These are people like Martin Luther. Many religious scholars pinpoint the beginning of the Refor Reformation from when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of church. Luther directed religious thought for centuries. And someone like John Calvin, a French reformist who broke with the Catholic Church and helped with Protestant reform efforts, influencing Christian theology and religion. And non-Christian, there's also non-Christian theologians. Other religions have their own theologians as well, like Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of the leading Jewish theologians of the 20th century, Rachel Adler, an influential Jewish theologian focusing especially on gender issues and Jewish law, Prophet Muhammad, the founder of Islam, is considered one of the foremost theologians in the world, someone whose view of theology has shaped the world for centuries, and Buddha, while possibly not truly a theologian, Buddha's spiritual teachings nevertheless have influenced millions of people through centuries. Looking at art and meaning, we have a better understanding that art has an embodied meaning or is always about something. However, Art is subjective and not everyone has the same feelings or thoughts, which in turn we can see that you don't have to be religious to have an understanding of the work of art. As long as you have an understanding of the culture and time period, you can get a visual and a basic understanding of the feelings that it may hold. Now I need to think about how do we, or how do those specific people contribute to religious art? One religious art piece that always comes to mind that is contributed by a theologian is the Buddha statues. We see them all over the place in our homes, in um, businesses. He's known as the enlightened one and proposes a life of good thoughts, good intentions, and straight living with the hopes to achieve ultimately nirvana after being released from the earth. When he died, he was actually cremated and then his ashes were spread into relic caskets. Um, and then as of now, we even see oh, the caskets in general, those caskets are, are all over. But as of now, we see that the Buddha statues across Asia are representative of the teachings and travels of the Gautama Buddha. Um, 
So when we look at it, according to learnreligions.com, each statue features common physical attributes, poses, and postures that define its purpose and meaning, um, which always goes back to his, you know, the enlightened one goes back to the good thoughts, um, good intentions, and straight living. So when we look at it, the hand gestures of the Buddha called the mudras indicate teaching, meditation, enlightenment, and wisdom. This was then brought to the Western civilization as a means of luck. Now, going forward, when we look at this, we see these Buddhas all over the place in different businesses and homes, not necessarily something that has to have a religious um, affiliation with, more so along the lines of being able to go back to the teachings of it. So not necessarily something that has to, just because you're not Buddhist doesn't mean you have to not believe what it says. Then when we go to Europe, there was the Last Supper, which was created by Leonardo da Vinci in 1945 through, sorry, 1495 to 1497. This depicts the final dinner of the gathering or the gathering of Jesus with his disciples. In the painting or mural, Leonardo was not there um, in the actual um, sitting of the dinner. So he uses this medium as a that was painted on the monastery wall in Milan to showcase the various reactions of each disciple, almost foreshadowing the event that's going to take place after. It's almost as if he wanted the viewer to feel what was going to take place and using this medium um, as a painting to then showcase the religious aspect. Chapter three in our reading for the podcast states, how can anyone who experiences an artwork be assured that he or she understands its real meaning? In some, case, in some cases, we comprehend what a work is about in a direct, immediate revelation. In other cases, a work's meaning is pieced together only after we notice how various features of the object all contribute to that meaning. For instance, philosopher Martin Heidegger believed the cognitive value of art lay in its capacity to stimulate thoughts that led far beyond what was depicted or betrayed. So at the end of the day, how does elegy fit in? An elegy is a poetic metaphor of serious reflection. It's usually something that revolves around mourning the dead. Um, in visual arts world is usually an artwork that expresses great sorrow. So in the case of Heidegger, since art has the ability to stimulate thoughts, even if you are a non-believer and have never experienced love or sorrow, an individual has the ability to be able to comprehend or experience a love poem or an elegy or religious art because humans can experience feelings. And examples that mentioned could be proven since that um, any individual could relate to work of art and carry out their own form of interpretation, other religious events without the need of the historical background or the need to be a theologian or a firm believer. And I think one of the things that we need to think about is that eulogy is that poetic um, reflection at the end of the life, you know, like, and um, it, it kind of, we're mourning the dead, but at the same time, um, we don't always have to have a religious, you know, affiliation surrounding it. I'm not sure what the YouTube believe with that, but I know that um, you can be a non-believer 
and still hold the same emotions and passion and still feel the same way as if the artist or the person commissioned or the person that even wants the work to be um, represented. So if I'm looking at The Last Supper as someone who's a non-religious, in a non-religious viewpoint, I still hold the same feelings as if um, I was a devout Catholic. What are your thoughts on that? I think I agree because at the end of the day, like you can understand the emotion of the artwork and of the painting just because you know we all are human at the end of the day and it's easy to pick up on those type of things to develop like an interpretation it might not be like a hundred percent correct and it might not be exactly what the artist had intended but you'll get like the gist of it if you know what i mean yeah no i i agree completely with what uh your ladies just said it's all uh human emotion whether you're religious or not, uh, work of art is going to get to you one way or another. I agree on this. So coming from an English perspective, right, uh, there's a lot of poets out there, especially like English poets, right? Um, more one that always comes to mind is the Ode to a Grecian Urn because of the fact that we're talking about um, art in general, right? So Ode to a Grecian Urn ultimately talks about um, how pictures are frozen in time. He's using this Grecian urn to depict uh, pictures of what's happening of an unravished bride of quietness, um, foster child of silence and slow in time. So he's using this urn as a history to tell a story, not necessarily something that um, Keats, John Keats, who the author was, he wasn't by all means Greek at all, but he's using this as a representation. And I feel like this particular medium is the same thing as in art and it kind of goes across the way with literature as well, that just because you have that medium or even popular music, um, being able to feel the emotions of the artist doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be in love at that most moment in time. Do we feel the same way? Yeah, I was just like thinking very deeply about that because like um, I didn't even like think about the time aspect like that you don't even have to feel that when you're looking at the artwork, but like you just are knowledgeable about that. Um, so like it was interesting for you to say that. So I was just like in deep thought about that. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I think like even, um, I think Paul, you had brought it up on page 25 in the textbook. Um, we had the 15th century Italian artist, Andrea del Vercio. I think I just butchered his name, and I am so sorry. He created a statue of David um, with the statue over the victory over Goliath. Um, and it had that determination to stand up to large powers. And it was displayed in City Hall, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it had to do with that particular um, piece. Uh, that's not what he was feeling. He was more so just being commissioned to do this, to create it. Yes, exactly. He had a, a small business in essence with uh, assistants and apprentices that produces from anything from painting to altarpieces, to sculptures, to banners, to even precious metal objects and architecture. Um, the statue was actually commissioned by the Medici family and which was at the time very wealthy and powerful Florentine family. I 
are there any other things in the textbook that maybe also, because when we think about commissioned work, um, there's really no emotional attachment with it, I would think. I think it's just you're being paid to do something as opposed to someone that has um, an actual exact purpose. And I think that's one of the big things in understanding it. If you have a purpose, it's the purpose. If that specific artist has a purpose and wanted to do it with a religious um, intention in mind, that's different than someone that's being commissioned. You know, now that you bring that up and now that I think about it, um, so at the end of the day, if we really sit here and think about it, are we uh, interpreting um, the artist's intent or is commissioner's intent? That's a really like, good question. <laughs> That's an actually a fabulous question because wouldn't the commissioner's intention to get the art out there and to spread the word, but at the same time to get paid, I would think. Yeah, like what if it has nothing to do with the actual artist's beliefs? So then, the, then if we think about it, the theologian would be incorrect to begin with. Then that um, argument at the very beginning where it talks about um, how, where they claim, right, where they claim that a person who's never loved cannot understand or experience a love poem, and a person who, has knew, who knew no sorrow can't really understand or, uh, or experience a eulogy. Um, it's the same thing. Um, if just because I'm a non-believer, I can't, I can still understand and understand and comprehend and experience the music, the paintings, the poetry um, created by the believers. So I think it just goes back to that. And I don't think that the, 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 the excuse me, that the leading theologian makes a valid argument at the end of the day. I totally agree. And in that case, when we think about it like that, um, the theology is definitely discredited in their thought. And if we take it a step further, so if we're looking at um, the commissioner's interpretation instead of the artist's interpretation beliefs, so I'm pretty sure the commissioner has a reason and a motive for why they would want an artist to portray whatever it is that they need portrayed. Um, it could be, you know, to manipulate the beliefs of others, like, you know, like, um, not not to get like disrespectful or get like on the non-believer side, but you know, everyone knows about that painting of like, you know, the last supper, but did it even really happen? <laughs> and I think that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. This whole thing is based on a speculation of a book that's been created as opposed to um, real hard facts. I think that's one of the big things that it always goes back to. And, and I completely agree with you on that, Brittany, that I completely agree. It's based on something that was found in a book, but at the same time, if we're going along the lines of that, then that means Harry Potter could potentially be for real. And I can now have a religion based off of Harry Potter. Um, and I think though, when you look at it, and we talked about that before, um, it's interpretation and it's the experience of the viewer. And I think it always comes back to that. It has art is for me in my, in my words and how I understand it after the readings and such, um, art is different in everyone's eyes. 
I think that's one of the big things. Um, we can sit here and debate over and over again what one thing means, but at the end of the day, it could not possibly um, mean the same thing to Brittany or to Paul that it does to me. Exactly. Like there's an old saying that goes, um, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholders or the arts interpretation in the viewer's eyes is, you know, in the viewer's eyes. Yeah, Absolutely. no, exactly. I completely agree. <laughs> well said. Yeah, because I think it was in the text that we looked at um, the it was the going back to the St. Um, Chappelle, when he makes all of these, when the architect makes all these um, huge lines pointing up to heaven and such, to me, um, yes, that is something that is, to me, as a non-believer, it looks like you are going up into heaven, right? And it showcases that, that vertical arch. However, at the same time, to me, it just looks like the beauty and they just wanted to elongate it to make it look bigger, to make the room look bigger. Um, I always thought it, the bigger the room, the, the, the bigger the, the ego. Um, I could totally be wrong on that. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. That also is a good point. I mean, um, hmm. Okay, bigger the room, bigger the ego. Wow, okay. So if we take that in the form of the religious aspect, you know, like, um, you know, most religious artworks, in some sense, it has a really like a big um, proportion to it. Like, I'm br gonna bring it back to the Last Supper one more time. Like, if we really think about it, um, Jesus is like, you know, he's in the center and he is the uh, largest um, character in the portrait as well. Like, if we were to scale it amongst everybody else, so um, I'm pretty sure that goes into how the painting is viewed and how it's supposed to be interpreted with him being in the center and being the biggest thing in the room. Yeah, from what I remember, I think when we looked at the type of lines, you had that combination of vertical, horizontal, and diagonal lines with it. And, and with him being in the front, in the fore center, um, and it kind of almost it's almost like a, a ray coming out to me when you look at everything where the, the middle is that horizontal line and then you have the room just building bigger. And it goes back to, you know, at the end of the day, interpretation. This was da Vinci's interpretation of what this Last Supper looks like. Um, and with the foreshadowing of the horrible tragic event that's going to happen after the Last Supper with um, Jesus's crucifixion. Uh, and so again, there has an emotional piece knowing that this gentleman's going to die. But is it something that has a religious basis to it? For me, no. Same, because um, I didn't even know that he dies after the last supper. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. no okay. I, I, from what I think, it's foreshadowing the tragic event of the crucifixion after it. So it's almost like um, yeah. all of the all of the people, all the um, disciples looking at him have like different kind of looks. And Leonardo da Vinci created this so that the looks um, could be almost like shame or, oh, you know, horrible grief or, oh, you know what's coming now, man. <laughs> kind of like, oh, I know what's happening next. Um, so he has that and he created it so that this was his depiction of, well, if he was there, um, this would what this is what it looked like. 
And now with that um, background in mind, uh, my interpretation is different. I'm just here thinking like, this is a nice big feast, a nice dinner, um, and everyone's getting fed. <laughs> <laughs> a little more than that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a little bit more in depth than that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think that this conversation helped clears things up because um, it ties in a lot of the stuff that we as, as viewers look at. And it ties in the fact that, it, and it goes back to that case study, whether or not you have to be a devout religious person to understand the piece of art and you don't. Um, I mean, you have to have some cultural background and knowledge of what's happening to understand it, but it's not something that needs to be, um, you know, your everyday life, you know, me, you and Paul don't have to go to church to understand the Last Supper. It's just a conversation and understanding the cultural background and what was happening in that moment in time. Yes, exactly. And the conversation as proven today can go a long way with um, interpretation. And with that being said, I want to thank you all for joining us so much today, Paul and Amanda. I really do appreciate it. And this concludes Exploring Art Podcast. Subscribe to Exploring Art Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Please join us soon and remember to stay curious.